Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Aranax podcast from Fathom World. I'm Craig Eason, and in this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the belief in European political circles that shipping should go in the ETS, shipping certificates should be subject to full auctioning, so there will be no free certificates for anyone, but every certificate will have to be paid for. I've been following and reporting on the environmental and societal changes facing shipping for about 15 years. And for nearly all that time, there's been talk about how a market-based measure in some form or other could potentially be devised to push vessels to be optimised for fuel and therefore reduced CO2 emissions. And now, during the week of the 14th of September, the European Parliament, during a plenary meeting, is set to assess how proposals, new proposals from its Environment Committee to push shipping into the bloc's emissions trading scheme should be developed. There are those that are keen to make it work this time. When the new European Commission took up office in 2019, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen promised that shipping would be brought into the ETS. The IMO member states have had their own attempts at creating a market-based system for shipping, but over a number of years have never been able to agree on what form it should take. Europe looks like it may well be trying to force the IMO member states to begin acting more quickly. The voice you heard at the start of the podcast was Jutta Paulus, Green Party member of the European Parliament. She's the rapporteur responsible for the proposals in the European Parliament Environment Committee, pushing to include shipping in the regional ETS. Ahead of the pending parliamentary plenary meeting, I spoke to Jutta Paulus about why she thinks the time is right to get this proposal pushed through the Parliament before it heads to the tripartite talks and then the Commission for Development. The last time this, um, this issue was debated in 2015, the Commission more or less promised that they would um, not introduce shipping into the ETS back then, but they would do it as soon as possible next time. So I think the time is now because we do have the shipping file on our desk right now. The second reason is, of course, Fridays for Future, the whole climate movement, which really took up speed in 2019. And there was a lot of um, support from normal people, so to speak, not just the activists saying we have to do something about it. And personally, I believe, well, those Fridays for Future kids, they all have parents, don't they? And those parents are getting asked very inconvenient questions. So they also want to act because um, it's on their conscience that they have to say the better word for their children. And as an outcome of all this, the new European Commission um, announced the Green Deal saying we will make Europe the first climate neutral continent. And Ms. van der Leyen promised to include shipping in the ETS when she took up office. So it's very clear that this will happen inevitably. And I'm, um, I'm thinking, well, why not do it as soon as possible? Because there is no time to lose in the climate crisis. Her proposal is to use the data that Europe has started collecting through its regulations that all ships over 5,000 tonnes calling at European ports should submit emissions and cargo work data. 
As it doesn't rely on vessels recording how much bunkers they purchase from anywhere, there is less fear, she says, of what is known as carbon leakage. The emissions trading scheme in Europe has been around for about 15 years, with industrial companies having to buy and sell carbon allocations or credits. But what is the ETS and how does it work? Clearly, I needed to find an expert to give me the 101 on emissions trading schemes. So I found Adam Berman. Sure. So my name's Adam Berman. I work as the uh, EU Policy Director for an organisation called AITA, um, the International Emissions Trading Association. It's a business organisation that seeks to advocate for global carbon markets, in other words, for using market mechanisms to deal with climate change. Adam told me how the emissions trading scheme works. It's been running for 15 years, and while it's amended a couple of times, it's now the largest one in the world. What happens is that essentially each company is um, is told there is an overall cap on the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that can be produced within a particular time frame. So let's say to 2030, there is an overall cap for all industries and no more carbon dioxide than this amount can be emitted. Now, what that means um, is that it creates a very, very definable environmental outcome in law that a regulator lays down. So uh, whereas the carbon tax just places a levy on the on the greenhouse gas emissions, the emissions trading system means that uh, regulators can actually assure that not above a particular level of greenhouse gas emissions is emitted by a particular time. Now, what happens after you set that cap um, is that you then set a, a trajectory for decarbonisation. You say, over time, you will have to emit fewer and fewer emissions in order to reach that cap. And in order to try and incentivize this, a market is formed where um, there will be a compliance uh, that uh, companies will need to comply with this. And in order to do that, they will need to purchase allowances, which are essentially permissions to pollute. And these allowances allow them to pollute a certain amount of carbon dioxide um, every year. And so at the moment we have European allowances, which allow you to uh, emit one tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, you then create a secondary market around these allowances in which they become tradable commodities. So actually it's not just the entities which need to comply with this, um, which, which purchase them, you know, entities such as, uh, you know, you know, significant emitters in the steel industry or cement industry, but also financial traders who are acting as intermediaries. Now, the really crucial thing that the emission trading system um, allows you to do is that it allows decarbonisation to happen both where it is most efficient and where it is cheapest. Now, what that really means is that we work logically from where it is cheapest to abate the carbon, where it is cheapest to decarbonize, and we slowly work up that chain to the areas in, like aviation, for example, the international aviation industry, where it's very, very expensive to decarbonize those activities. And so it's, it's just the most efficient way of dealing with the problem. And for people like me who believe that the market uh, when used right, when harnessed correctly, is the right way to deal with climate change. It's a really, really powerful tool to drive decarbonisation in the right way. Green MEP Paulus is adamant that it will be fairly easy to include shipping into the ETS, even if it does include having operators who may have only a single vessel call at a European port over a year, and then they find that they're suddenly at risk 
are needing to find a way to trade in a foreign ETS. Well, there are, there are several options, actually. Um, we have now found a compromise in Parliament where we are saying, OK, shipping should go in the ETS, shipping certificates should be subject to full auctioning, so there will be no free certificates for anyone, but every certificate will have to be paid for. And Parliament says, or at least Envy Committee says, we want half of the revenues from this ETS certificates being auctioned within the ship operators um, dedicated to a fund. This fund should bring forward research, development, innovative solutions, and also a, a part of this fund should be reserved for marine biodiversity. And the other half of the revenues should go to the European Union as own resources, which we urgently need also for our COVID recovery fund. And um, how the exact mechanism would work, will the certificates be auctioned at a central place? Will, will there be auctions in the member states? Um, how will the allocation actually take place? How many certificates will be issued for the ship, shipping sector? That's for DG Klima to decide and to set up the mechanism. What we are also asking for in our report is that we are saying for those companies that are small, that are maybe only three, four, five people that say, we cannot take part in such an auction. This legal stuff is just too much work for us. We cannot find our way through this maze or whatever. I mean, a lot of companies have done so for the last 20 years. So I think it's feasible. But for those who are reluctant to take part, we have found an easy solution saying, okay, if you don't want to take part, then you just have to count your emissions. And at the end of the year, you will have to pay the respective amount of the highest price of the auction into the fund. But bringing a new industry into the ETS could have a profound impact on other industries already part of the trading scheme with their own allocations of emissions and certificates. Well, actually, we have seen quite a few studies um, when we had the hearing in the Environmental Committee, and I've also spoken to several researchers who work, uh, have been working on carbon pricing for a very long time. And every single one was saying, well, with the current carbon price, which is around 25, 30 euro, you will not see any big efficiency gains in shipping because um, the avoidance costs in shipping are much, much higher. If you would want to build a zero emission vessel, that would be an equivalent to several hundred euros per ton of CO2. So basically what the inclusion in the ETS is doing is two things. First of all, you will collect money actually to feed this fund, which goes in turn back to the, to the industry, fostering research, development, innovation. And secondly, you're setting the signal, carbon emission is not for free. There is no possibility to put your carbon waste in the atmosphere for free. And thirdly, you may have the effect that if, for example, shipping increases a lot, increases more than we have, um, than DG Klima has said, okay, they will probably use so and so many certificates. So if there is an increase in shipping, then there's also an increase in the demand for certificates. 
And that puts pressure on other sectors because it's a market, right? So if shipping goes and buys certificates, which maybe other players like um, energy industry, okay, industry. Or, or, um, or other, other um, sectors would have bought for a lower price, then the price would go up. So this does play a role for the other sectors. This has happened at a, at a pace, to be honest, which, which I think most people who are keen EU observers think is, is, is pretty speedy. You know, usually you're looking at a really substantial multi-year legislative process to try and try and get something like this passed. And now for the maritime sector, we're looking at you know, probably only, only a couple of years. Um, that's still, you know, that there's a lot of horse trading yet to be done at, at Brussels level. Um, if when we look back a few months, there certainly were some within the maritime industry who were, you know, were expressing quite strong views in opposition to this. I think many people have now realised that, to all intents and purposes, this is politically a done deal. Um, it is going to happen. And the devil's going to be in the detail. Um, I think the other industries within the EU are also aware of this and are, you know, would not want to oppose this simply on the grounds that there may be some fluctuations in terms of prices. Um, in terms of whether the, the prices themselves will, will change vastly, I think really there's, there's two ways of looking at this. If you were to look at this purely from, from a, you know, the sense of being, being um, uh, within EU industry, yes, there may well be changes because what happens under the EU ETS and what happens under all emissions trading systems is that the most efficient and lowest cost decarbonisation is found first. Now, we've just gone through essentially a major kind of tranche of decarbonisation in the EU, which is in the power sector, it's in the electricity sector. And that's because carbon prices have been sort of somewhere between 20 to 30 euros per tonne. And what that's meant is a lot of fuel switching has been possible, switching primarily from coal to natural gas, but also from coal to, to renewables. Um, we're now moving to a slightly different kind of tranche of abatement or tranche of decarbonisation, which is probably from the higher 20s through to into the, the 30 euros a tonne. Now, it, it really depends on, on what is the cheapest abatement here, it depends on what is the cheapest decarbonisation. And, and it depends which sector you're in as to how you see that. Um, there will be some sectors that will want that price to move up quite quickly now so that their, de their decarbonisation can happen sooner rather than later. Um, what will happen if shipping is introduced is that the cheapest decarbonisation will be found. If that happens to be in the maritime sector, then what will happen is the maritime sector will, will start to decarbonise much quicker than other sectors. So I think, you know, that, as I said, there's kind of two ways of looking at this. The first is oh, well, yes, this might be frustrating from other sectors' perspectives because it might, it might slightly delay our decarbonisation or it might slightly increase the cost of that decarbonisation. But I think the other way to look at it is that, you know, we're now, we're, we're, you know, the EU is proposing to include a sector which to date has not had a great deal of success in, in terms of decarbonisation. It's a substantial growth sector. Um, and so there, there really does need to be some solution found to it. And I think, I think, you know, the, a small increase in prices, if indeed that does happen, is seen at EU level as, as not a great price to pay for, uh, for that uh, being included. The proposal to include shipping into the European ETS has been criticised by a number of shipowner groups who are keen to see a decision made at the IMO, even if that decision seems to be slow in arriving. 
I tried to talk to the European Community Shipowners Association, but they were unable to come back to me in time, although they had earlier issued a statement to the press in relation to the recovery measures that Europe had proposed to respond to the COVID pandemic. Towards the latter part of the message, EXA laid out its concerns about the inclusion of shipping into the European ETS and pointed attention to the bunker surcharge proposal that has gone to the IMO that could raise $5 billion in about 10 years, a sum derided as paltry by Jutta Paulus. EXA is also critical of the suggestion that ETS revenues from shipping should be used in a general recovery package. But there is another element to Paulus's proposal that's going through Brussels lawmaking processes at the same time as the ETS. It's something that mirrors part of the IMO goals, but is yet to be picked up by the shipowner groups, a proposal to force existing ships to cut emissions by 40% within the next decade. Jutta Paulus told me her proposal is to use the data taken from the European MRV for 2018 and 2019. She said she believes the MRV data is better and more useful than the other system, the IMO's data collection system, which, Paulus says, should be taken with a pinch of salt. What we're saying is we are using the reliable data that we have collected using the MRV, whereas the IMO has picked the year of 2008, which means they are picking a year with very, very high emissions, so it's easier to come down from these high emissions and secondly they don't have really reliable data for that they have industry data which has been handed over freely and they don't have any data at all for cargo carried so that's the big difference we do have the parameter cargo carried in the mrv register so we actually can really calculate the carbon intensity and again, it was very important for us not to punish those who have already um, acted and trying, tried to become more efficient, who have applied measures, who have, um, for example, renewed the hulls, who have um, deployed um, new turbines, who have deployed new engines, because those um, first movers are already below the average of the whole fleet. And the goal is not 40% for the individual ship or for the individual company, but 40% below the average of the whole fleet. So if you're already, let's say, 20% below the average, you have only a very small way to cover still. So when you talk about 40% of the whole fleet, that's a, that's a broad definition, because within that definition, you've got different ship types. Yes. You've got, yes. you've got vessels that are more based on the volume of the space, like a Ropax or a passenger ship. Then you've got um, vessels that carry a, a cargo and discharge all of that cargo in one go. Or you've got vessels like container vessels, which tend to be, you know, dropping off that cargo at one point, picking up a little bit. So are you, are you, no, is I it was, likely to be too indiscriminate? Imprecise. No, I was being imprecise. Um, I thought it would it would be easier to use this word, the whole fleet. But of course, um, our report says that the commission should, should define the baseline for the different ship categories. And the categories depend on the, on the um, sort of ship you're using. So you have, for example, the container ship are one category. And within this category of container ships, you have a, 
an additional differentiation by size. Because of course, the bigger the ship is, the easier, the lower is the carbon intensity in the first place. And um, a row row carrier, for example, could never be compared with a container ship when it comes to carbon intensity. So I was just being imprecise because I wanted to make it clear that the goal was not for the individual ship because that was a big concern of ship owners saying, well, I have invested so much and my ship is so good already and now I have to reduce by another 40%. And I was always like, no, 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 no. You're already at minus 30%. So you have to reduce only 10% from the average of, let's say, row-row carriers, let's say, bulk carriers, whatever your ship is belonging to, so to speak. And how do you envisage this reduction target being enforced? Because if you say 40% by 20 30, you might find that all of the ship operators try and do it all in 2029. Yes, that's, that were, we thought about that too, actually. And um, in the report, we put down a linear regression, regression. So you cannot say, okay, I'll wait until 2029 and not do anything before that. So we will have the evaluation of this carbon intensity on a yearly basis. And of course, there will be penalties because else you could not, you could never enforce anything if you didn't impose penalties. And what sort of penalties do you, do you think you'd have to do to make them create change? Well, we've used the word dissuasive um, financial pay payments so that um, the penalty is high enough for the ship operator to say, okay, that was maybe not so good an idea. I should maybe have just uh, resorted to slow steaming because my ship is so old, because that's something you can always do. Brussels is concerned about any loopholes to its rules, according to Adam Berman, who also points to the possibility of ship owners scheduling vessels to call at nearby non-EU ports ahead of a European port call, making the emissions that need to be reported lower. A ship, for example, could call at Tangiers or after Brexit at Southampton, and then the owner only has to report that departure to a European port into the MRV system. But this is where a proposed carbon border mechanism could hit shipping. Berman explains a little about the proposal. We have very few details, frankly, to date from the European Commission in terms of their, their proposals on this. So it, I think that the jury's out as to even what this mechanism will look like. But it might be worth just saying a little bit about why this mechanism is important and kind of what what some of these more international attempts to deal with climate change might mean for the, the, the shipping sector in the longer term. So uh, under the, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement signed in, in 2015, there was one particular article of it called Article 6, which is, since this agreement was signed, has been a major stumbling block in its implementation. And what this article calls for is essentially mechanisms to allow countries to align when it comes to carbon markets and to form a bit more of a level playing field when it comes to the way in which they deal with carbon between these different jurisdictions. So at the moment, 
um, the EU ETS um, is not, uh, it, well, it's linked to one other jurisdiction, which is Switzerland, which means that Switzerland is literally on a, on a sort of even keel when it comes to carbon pricing. Um, it's on the same level of carbon pricing as is the European Union. But there's no other international linkages, which means that, uh, you know, th this is done to try and make sure that there isn't uh, carbon leakage between different jurisdictions. Um, what the Paris Agreement tried to encourage was to try and encourage more connections between countries. It tried to encourage more international cooperation in terms of carbon pricing. And when you look at what the EU is doing at the moment, it's looking at including shipping within its, its ETS. Um, it's considering very strongly whether to place intra-EU, just intra-EU, intra and extra-EU shipping into that. Now, you know, who knows what they will end up with, but if we were in a world in which there was more parity between different jurisdictions and there was more international cooperation in terms of um, carbon markets, in terms of ETSs, in terms of other carbon pricing mechanisms, then the EU would only really need to place intra-EU maritime within their, within their ETS. But because we don't currently live in that world, that's what's pushing the EU towards a solution which tries to place all maritime that comes into and out of their ports within the ETS. So this carbon, this proposed carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is essentially a tax on imports to try and ensure that they reach parity with, with EU environmental standards and the cost of producing goods at a European level, again, is something that would not be necessary if there was more parity at global level in terms of carbon pricing. Now, people like me, um, have been working for years much, much longer than I've been in the industry to try and get one coherent, one cohesive global carbon pricing system with a global carbon price. We're not there yet. In fact, we're quite some way away from it. But the mechanisms are there to try and move us slowly toward that point. So, for example, we've been hearing some things out of the Biden campaign in the US about what the US may do to try and deal with climate change. Um, there are various proposals that have been kind of mooted. One of them is the idea of what's called a, a carbon club, which in other words is, is just a club of uh, countries that choose to align on their rules, particularly in terms of the way they price carbon into their economy. So you can imagine a situation in which, say, the EU places just intra-EU maritime into the, the ETS. You can imagine a situation in which should Biden be elected as president in November um, and he decides to create some sort of carbon club that actually over time you'll see a situation in which because the US is aligned with the EU in terms of carbon pricing that actually all maritime moving between those two jurisdictions would necessarily be included uh, and would be dealt with equally by those two jurisdictions but because we don't have that quite yet we're left with solutions like a carbon border adjustment mechanism that just places a tax on all, you know, all imports which are dirtier than a, you know, that are more carbon intensive than, than an EU standard. And we're left with solutions like heading towards um, placing all shipping under the EU ETS because no other jurisdictions are currently, at least, are, are signed up internationally to reach that same EU level. So fingers crossed, we will move toward that point. Uh, and there are plenty of people trying to move us, trying to get us to that point. But for the time being, we're left with this rather patchwork series of international um, agreements and, and often bilateral or plurilateral agreements. Um, in the EU's case, 
we're left with solutions where they're trying to both move first and trying to move others with them as they move towards that net zero goal. And that will involve some, um, some, some difficult decisions, I think, and, and probably some pain for, for a few international sectors, at least in the short term. Adam Berman from the International Emissions Trading Association, ending that look at the proposals currently set for discussion by the European Parliament to bring shipping into the region's ETS. Stephen Jones from Liverpool. You can read my insights into maritime clusters on the Fathom website. You can find out what I think about community and how important that is to building a real cluster effect. Hope you enjoy. And now we hear from Nick Chubb from Thetius about some of the technology news he thinks is set to reshape shipping. Thanks, Craig. Anyone who spent time on the bridge of a ship will recognise that distinctive crackle of the VHF radio coming to life. VHF has become a vital tool for allowing maritime operators, whether they're ships, ports, pilots, or search and rescue coordinators, to share information. But traditional voice-based VHF has its limits. There's no way to verify the identity of a user. You cannot broadcast at the same time as receiving information, and it's incredibly easy to hijack, as anyone who spent time in a busy anchorage will be able to tell you. VDES, or VHF Data Exchange System, changes all of that. VDES allows ships to exchange operational data over VHF radio. It works in a similar way to AIS, except it has 32 times the bandwidth. VDES makes it possible for ships to share planned routes with each other, for ports to share recommended ETAs and traffic information automatically, and even for ships to share local weather and emissions data. The technology is still in its infancy, uh, but it's about to take a great leap forward. In the last few weeks, Saab, AAC Space, and Orbcom announced they are working on launching a VDES satellite. The satellite, which will launch in 2022, is the first of a constellation that would extend the range of VDES from nearshore through the entire ocean. Now time for a bit of autonomous shipping news. In the last few weeks, Masterly, the joint venture between Wilhelmsen and Kongsberg, has signed a contract with Norwegian grocery distributor ASKO to operate two new vessels equipped with autonomy technology from Kongsberg. The two vessels being developed under the contract will be battery powered and will replace 2 million kilometers of truck transport and save 5,000 tons of CO2 every year. The vessels will be equipped with technology to enable zero emission and unmanned operations and will be managed by Marsley from a remote operations center. Lastly this week, Israeli technology scale-up Winward has released a new maritime predictive intelligence solution, uh, which uses what they call maritime artificial intelligence analytics. The system consists of 10 billion data points and 300 behavioral analysis models. The idea is to enable organizations to make quicker decisions and optimize their operations. Nick Chubb from Thetius on some of the technology news in shipping. That's it for this episode. Please feel free to get in touch with me and remember to subscribe to the podcast as well as visit the Fathom World website, check out our growing news archive and subscribe for the weekly newsletter. And subscribers to the newsletter will have got links to access the full interviews with Jutta Paulus and Adam Berman about the ETS 
and those other European mechanisms that could be set to impact shipping. And next week, I'm set to tackle the sensitive issue of bullying at sea. I understand that they probably didn't mean to have this many odd characters <laughs> aboard, but the captain was selling pornography to the crew. The chief engineer was very sexist. So please subscribe to get more insights and news about the technologies, regulation, businesses, and the people that are transforming our shipping, maritime, and ocean sectors. Until the next time.